Today's scripture reading is from the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 11, verses 7 to 16. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find one under the chair in front of you, and you can open it to page 901. Again, that's 1 Corinthians, chapter 11, verses 7 to 16. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. And just like our brother Eugene gave the announcements, we do have um, a retreat save the date that we're all hoping that you will put in your calendars. It's that first weekend of June. It's going to be the first time we're going to have a summer retreat as well as a retreat that will extend into Sunday. So it will be at America's Keswick in Whiting, Jersey, and we have a wonderful speaker. His name is uh, Pastor Jonathan Gibson, and a lot of you families with children may know because you've read his book, The Moon is Always Round. Uh, his book, Reformation Worship, has been formative in our liturgy and the forming of our liturgy as well. He also happens to be Sam's and uh, Brian's former professor at Westminster Theological Seminary. So this is a very exciting speaker uh, that we have for the retreat, upcoming retreat. So please save the date, and we'll let you know in the future on how you can register. As we enter into this time of the message, let's start with a prayer. O God, source of all light, by your word you give light to the soul. Pour out upon us the spirit of wisdom and understanding that... Being taught by you in the Holy Scripture, our hearts and minds may be open to know the things that pertain to life and holiness through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So we're in a very interesting portion in this part on the first letter to the Corinthians this morning. And if you were here last week, we saw that the Apostle Paul was really touching upon some biblical principles here that Maybe if you're like me, maybe you grew up in a church too, and maybe you didn't really go over in depth in your youth group or whatever it was, uh, these biblical principles. And if you're like me, maybe you only heard the criticisms for it too. And so sometimes, if you're in my position, you heard the criticisms first, and then you would come upon these verses as if to prepare us for what is to come when we read. I went over some of those criticisms last week, albeit not exhaustively, but I don't think an exhaustive defense of every criticism is necessary. I wanted to go over some 
just to note the sheer amount of criticism this text has received in recent decades. Again, this is recent decades, and we'll go over why this is all significant as well. But I want to put this disclaimer out there that this will be in no ways an exhaustive presentation of the view on complementarianism. I just want to go over what's in the passage, and I assure you that even that will be a lot. And you're welcome to read more. You can come to me for extra books and readings. I particularly enjoy a book uh, by the author named Claire Smith. She wrote a book called God's Good Design. It's excellent. It's an excellent exposition of Genesis 1-2-3. It's very exhaustive. There's another little pamphlet by Kathy Keller, if you know Tim Keller, his wife, who wrote a book on Jesus and justice as well. And um, John Piper and Wayne Grudem uh, wrote a very exhaustive book called Biblical Manhood that is multiple hundreds of pages that you are welcome to read. But as far as this passage and, the, and these principles here and these truths contained here are concerned, I do believe that they have been buried in the modern church. People just automatically default respond, it's cultural. And yes, there are cultural applications that Paul goes over but there are clearly principles, even when we read just a few, the first few verses, there are clearly principles that are laid out here as well. This principle is the exaltation of the role of woman. Women have a vital place in the covenant community, that means the church. It is an absolute certainty that they are indispensable to the life and ministry of the church. This is shown to us in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Women are key in evangelism. You can even see it in the Old Testament in Psalm 68, 11. It shows us that they were a great host proclaiming the good news of God. There's a picture of an army of women going out proclaiming the gospel. Many times in the New Testament, we see Paul condemning, um, excuse me, commending women personally and by name. In Romans 16, 2, Paul commends Phoebe as a diakonon. Diakonon is a male form of this noun, which we translate as deacon or servant. And Phoebe was a diakonon of the Lord. We see in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 11, the qualifications for women who would serve the church. In chapter 5 of that letter, older widows were placed in positions of honor in the church by Paul. They will be used in the ministry of the church in a special way. Even in Titus 2, we see older women called to teach younger women on how to be godly. There has never been a time when women were not a vital part of the church. Go back. Let's even go back. Let's, let's start doing biblical theology here. Let's even go back all the way to Genesis with Adam's fall. When God is cursing the serpent, he says in chapter 3, verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. If you read that, the first person technically to be called out against the serpent is not Adam. It's not the man, but the woman. And I suppose you could technically even say then that the first person in the church, church meaning people called out by God, is a woman then. 
In the life of Christ, women around him played a pivotal role in the witnessing of his death and resurrection. They would be the first witnesses to witness Jesus' resurrected body. In the early church with the apostles, it, were the, it was the women that gave their homes to them as a place of worship and meeting. Mary, the Mar- mother of Mark in Jerusalem, and Lydia in Philippi, and many other women would also do these things so that the church was able to survive and not only survive, but thrive. We see a huge gift in the gift of hospitality, a huge explosion, excuse me, of the gift of hospitality shown through the women in the early church. When Apostle, Apollos, excuse me, when Apollos, the great teacher, remember the Corinthians were arguing about who they followed, I follow Apollos, I follow Paul. But when uh, Apollos was first instructed, it was Priscilla and Aquila who first instructed them. Now, for me, I always make a note between the order of things and names. And when Priscilla and Aquila were put together, Paul would write Priscilla's name first, probably indicating the weight of her influence. There is no distinction to regards In regards to salvation, as we saw in Galatians 3.28, we see equality between men and women in regards to all the spiritual giftings as well. So as far as dignity and the honor of the essence of man or woman, they are equal. However, there are differences in assigned roles. And that was the point of last week's message. This is true of every relationship in any kind of pairing or grouping you can think of. Not everyone does the same thing. And here in the Bible, it's showing us that God has divinely ordered and given assignments to men and to women. And because God has made this distinction, we as his people are careful to maintain this difference and distinction as well. Different roles do not mean different values or worth. This is a concept that has escaped the ancient world, and I believe it even escapes ours now. Somehow, a difference in role is seen either as superior or inferior. Paul never makes such a distinction. Authority is not superior, and submission is not inferior. If that were so, if that were so, we would be saying Christ was inferior to the Father since he submitted to his will and not his own. You would then be in heretical territory if you thought that. Women are not less than men, and they are not more than men either. Women and men are equal and partners in the commission God gave us to have dominion over this world. However, however, if you have a woman take on a role specified for a man or a man take on a role specified for a woman, the scriptures call this disgraceful. The Bible minces no words on this. It's very clear. It's only those who come in with an ulterior motive saying, I'm going to read the Bible and we have to get here. If you say that, then you will have problems. The roles that have been assigned are clear, but they are important and they are vital. 
Without submission, authority does not exist. And without authority, submission cannot function. They are mutually dependent on each other. Now I'm going to go a little bit, like I said before, a little bit into the realm of biblical theology here. And I'm hoping this is for your benefit. And I'm going to say what the Bible specifically says about a certain topic. Any theologian will go into the realm of systematic theology. But your systematic theology must be subject to your biblical theology. You can't have a systematic theology that, I, that is not subordinate to solid biblical theology. So here is the doctrine. Biblical theology. Here is the doctrine. Here is the principle. Men are in authority. Women are in submission. This is by God's design. Thereby we see that men and women are both given the capacity to each other, for each other, to themselves, for their assigned roles. This is not a man-made construct. There have been, there are, there will be man-made abuses from both men and women, and there have been man-made abuses throughout history. But to throw away the doctrine because of its abuses would be to throw away the baby with the bathwater, leaving us with nothing to fill it except something other than what God has intended. Wake up. The thing you have in there then is not a baby. To understand any passage, you have to put it in context. If you want good biblical theology and you don't want to put it in the current context, I'm not going to go too much into this, but we don't read a paper or a book, let's say 80 years ago, in today's lens. That's why we keep on erasing books now. Theodore Seuss Geisel wrote a children's book in 1937 where a child would imagine exotic people and things he would see on a place called Mulberry Street. Those depictions are now seen as inappropriate. I looked at the book, and I can assure you, I found nothing inappropriate there. There is a page, however, where there was a man riding an elephant, pulling a sleigh with Eskimos. Apparently, that was offensive. And I read even one of the more controversial books called If I Ran the Zoo. I can see why people today would think that depictions of the Asians or the African people were a bit overboard. That was written in 1950. 1950, people didn't even know Korea existed, at least until June of that year when the war started. But they didn't know. My mom grew up here, and people were like, what are you, Chinese? And she was like, no. It's like, what are you, Japanese? And she's like, no. It's like, what are you? She's like, Koreans. Like, what is that? And she grew up here. This is not about excusing, and it's not about condemning. All I'm saying is, we read things in context. If you cannot do that, you might as well burn every historical book out there. I'm pretty sure that the vast majority of books were written noting that they won their superiority to all the other races and creeds. Also, I don't know why Mein Kampf is still on sale. It's one of the darkest manifestos written against the Jews its main thesis by Hitler, Adolf Hitler, was about what he would call the Jewish peril. People still think this to be true today, and yet we still sell that book. But perhaps it's good to have books like these not burned or banned, but rather rebutted. Perhaps our way of fighting 
is to confront lies with the truth. And I encourage everyone not to simply dismiss things then that are difficult. So if we are to believe that the entire Bible, the entire Bible is good, then the question that we come in here with is, is not, is this part good? That's not the question. The question is, why is it good? What's so good about it? Where is it good? How is it good? And putting things into context then helps us do that. When Paul was writing this letter, women were considered as slaves or even animals. This was terrible. There is no denying that. But that's when Paul was writing this letter. That's how the Greco-Roman world saw them. Even the Jewish man, there was a Jewish man who would pray, and this prayer was written down, and this was a common Jewish man's prayer. He would pray that he was thankful that he was not born three things. Number one, a Gentile. Number two, a slave. Number three, a woman. In the Greco-Roman world, women couldn't make any contributions to society. They were thought of nothing more than just a slave. And then, and then, so this is the world. That's where everybody lived in. And then all of a sudden, here comes Christianity, and Paul is exegeting scripture and announcing the spiritual equality of women. Spiritually, in their essences, they are equal and also all in their capacities as well. They are equal and so on, and he goes on. He lets them participate and be an integral part of the ministry and church work. He didn't confine women, but showed them the liberty and freedom they had in Christ. By then maintaining and reminding women of their roles then, like we see here, is not meant to confine but if we are reading it, it in context, it's to truly liberate women as well. If this is a God-ordained design, and it is, as we went over last week, if this is a God-ordained design, then we ought to see God's character displayed through his design and ultimately be beautiful in its execution in our lives. But this is not how the people in Rome or Corinth thought. It's, not, it's obviously not how the Western world now thinks either. But this is not how the people in Roman Corinth thought. There were evident abuses against women, and out of those abuses grew movements. There was a women's liberation movement in the Greco-Roman world, the feminist movements here in this time, and these elements are so similar today as it was back then I believe if you read the history books, it would also astound you. It would astound you how similar they are. True liberation, and this is what the Bible teaches us, true liberation came from Christ. But the world's ideologies, the world's movements, the world's revolutions started to influence and then infiltrate the church as it tries to do now. And so here is... So here is the difference between every single, every single social, economic, class, gender, sexual movement and revolution versus Christianity, okay? Every single movement insists on change outside before you can have peace inside. Every single revolution, every single movement insists on change outside before you can have peace inside. If that doesn't change, 
I will rage. I have every right to rage. Not so with God. Every movement insists on change outside before you can have peace inside. Change this book. Get rid of this institution. Give me reparations. Then I will have peace. And I can guarantee you, I can guarantee you, you will not have peace. What Christ does, however, is entirely radical. Christ changes the person from the inside out. He gives you peace that the world cannot give. So this peace starts with God, is given to you as grace, extends then from you to your family, to the church, to the community, and eventually changes the world. Every movement, I don't care if you call it from top down or grassroots, depends on someone else changing. But Christ changes your heart. Your peace then isn't dependent on the world. It's dependent on God. Every movement, revolution may have different terminology, but in essence they are the same and they cannot give what they promise. Women in the Greco-Roman world would state their independence from men by leaving their home or they would refuse to have children. And if they had children, they would refuse to take care of them. And we now know of places like the Lactoria Columna or the Spursi Lacus where you would abandon your child in these places because you would refuse to take care of them. And in those places they would either die or perhaps maybe, maybe someone wanted a baby and they would come pick up one baby. But there were throngs of babies just laid out for, for death. In these places, historically, we know then, it was Christian wet nurses that would come and pick up all these babies, giving way to what we now know as orphanages. But women would do these things and then demand jobs held by men classically. This is in the Greco-Roman world. They would wear men's clothes. They would cut their hair short. They would purposely violate their marriage vows. And the list goes on and on. I honestly am not sure what the difference between what happened back then and what is happening now is. Culture brought abuses to women and women reacted. But it was Christianity that came in and truly set women free as God designed them to be. By recognizing their equality in their personhood and spiritually, that means salvifically, women were then free to be what God designed them to be. Christians then are not feminists. I remember watching a celebrity take stage and say that uh, you are a feminist if you believe in the equality of women. And I said to myself, okay, terminology is off, definitions are wrong, but I'll grant the premise. And then she would continue for women to have access to health. Of course, who would disagree? Reproductive rights, and it's like, abortion? Never. Never, never will I agree to that. That is not equality. 
That is not the God-given liberty we exercise when we take another life. This goes directly against God's law and his will and has nothing to do with Christian liberty. But, as, but what it does have, it has everything to do with the independence from men and independence from God. Paul stated the principle in the beginning of last week's passage, the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. To deny the submission of woman to man is to deny this principle. Are we going to say then that the church is not to be submissive to Christ? In Ephesians 5.23, it says, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, as himself, its Savior. The wife's submission to her husband signifies to the world Christ's submission to Christ, uh, excuse me, the church's submission to Christ. And Christ, as we see here, was submissive to the Father. There may be some that are confused with my interchange between wife and woman. In the Greek, it's all the same word, gune. We translate wife in the second portion of that principle because it's the right translation, but we can easily translate it as woman as well, and it would also be right. That means it literally reads, the Greek literally reads, the woman's head is the man. And I'll get to that in a bit, okay? I'll get to that in a bit. There's going to be a lot. I may be going a little fast here, but praise God. Uh, these sermons are recorded, so you can listen to them again. I may go through some concepts relatively quickly. I want to make sure that you're paying attention Honestly, it's because I love you so much. I love this church so much. And I see this as a treasure that God has given us. I don't want you to miss out on this because you're just so enamored by the things of the world. Because you've been hurt by the world, then you believe the world has answers. I'm telling you right now, it doesn't have the answers. It will always fall short. The Bible clearly has the answers and it's fulfilled in Jesus Christ and that's what we want to follow. So in Corinth, Feminists generally would make a statement by taking off their veils and cutting their hair short. Then Christian women would bring that into the church. They started to demand their own independence. In a sense, they were abusing their own Christian freedom. Now we went over how a veil or covering on someone's head was a symbol of modesty and submission. This was just commonplace in Corinth in a public assembly. Removing that veil, then, is making a statement. Just like, just like this. If I did this, every time I walked up on stage, I came up on stage, got to the pulpit, and I did this. And then I started to preach. That's making a statement. You might be like, yeah, he was just free to do whatever he wants. Sure, I may be free to do that, but that's making a statement, And so there were two categories that women fell into the world. Uh, sorry, excuse me. There were two categories that women fell into when they would take off their coverings and or cut their hair short. This is the ancient world of Corinth, right? One, they were feminists influenced by the women's liberation movement. Or number two, they were prostitutes. We went, we went over that very briefly last week. You, as a prostitute, though, you couldn't do business unless people knew what you looked like. So they took off their veils. Temple prostitutes were even known to have had their heads shaved, so that's why they would stand out from the other woman. To stand out from the other woman, because they were temple prostitutes, they would take off their veil and shave their heads. 
So when Christian women came into the church, they threw away their veils, cut their hair short. In that society, they were identifying with either a prostitute or a feminist. And I find it intriguing that even now, feminists in this world cannot say anything against prostitutes because of the whole her body ideology. For Christians, however, our bodies are living sacrifices for the Lord. But by identifying with these secular ideals, the women were bringing reproach and shame on the church. It was tragic. It was tragic. So Paul writes to them for their sake to keep their coverings on. In that culture, to be modest and submissive to your man, to recognize, it was to recognize that you have an authority figure over your head than to be identified as such. To do that, a woman would have a covering on. I also find it intriguing that even today, Orthodox Jews, Orthodox Jewish women, and Muslim women still have head coverings, but Christians do not. Again, I'm not saying that Christian women should have head coverings. That is absolutely not what I am saying. But I'm saying that this tradition has been passed down. You can see for thousands of years I'll say now that what a Christian woman should be covered in then is they should be covered in strength and dignity and the fear of the Lord, like Proverbs 31. They should be covered in modesty and self-control, like 1 Timothy 2. They are to cover themselves then with the good works that glorify God, her maker, To say the least, this is a broad point that Paul is making here. We don't have veils in our church, but we have apparel that identifies us as people who honor Christ. When you wear your clothes, you wear your clothes to honor Christ. And just to review this principle again, Paul is saying that the head of every man is Christ, The head of a woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. Paul is teaching the Corinthians that in every dimension of relationships, there is a principle of authority and submission. It's true of man and woman. It's true of Christ and God. And this dimension that we've been given is from God. It does not have anything to do with inequality. Otherwise, Christ would be inferior to the Father, and he is not. So what does that mean? What does this all mean? It has to do with the different assignments or roles or functions within that relationship. It has to do with different assignments of roles or functions within that relationship. This is the principle. And when you see it modeled for us between Christ and God, it is an authority submission model based on love and not tyranny. A tyrannical approach to this model would only lead to women being treated as objects, which, by the way, pornography does. A tyrannical approach to this model would only lead to women being treated as objects, which, by the way, porn does, with men being the oppressors and then falling under the judgment of God. Or by the very same vein, just from the other end, women usurping Male roles. Also, we can see men taking on women's roles too, but women usurping male roles, bringing disruption into God's divine order, subjecting ourselves then also to the judgment of God. We don't want to turn men into women 
or women into men. We don't want to turn men or women into anything less than what God created them to be, both male and female, as God's image bearers. Don't you see? Each role, each role that has been assigned points to Christ. Each role rightly displays, rightly displayed, shows the world what love is. Each role glorifies God. And we use our rights then to bring attention and glory to Him, not us. I could indeed take my ring off every time I come up to the pulpit. I have every right to do that. But that statement, the statement it would construe, the statement that it would make would be a statement of confusion and not order. It would not bring order if you did something like that. It would bring confusion to the pulpit. So you wouldn't do something like that. In society, God wants these distinctions clear. Men are to be men, dressed like men, act like men. Women are to be women, dress like women, act like women. And if you thought that was just cultural, then here verse 7 is written for our benefit. For a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. It goes beyond culture. God is telling a man not to cover his head because he is the image and glory of God. So what did it mean to be uncovered? If a covering meant to be submissive, then to be uncovered meant to be someone in authority, someone in charge, someone that will lead. The man represents the authority in God. Yes, it is to show the world what a person in authority should look like, would look like, how he would act, and so on and so forth. To show the world, then, what God is like. A man is to bear witness in this aspect. So men who oppress, abuse, objectify are not using their authority as God would. You then are a bad witness. But women are different. Woman is the glory of man. Now, it's written here, the glory of man, not the glory of the man. There is no the. There is no definite article here in the Greek, so it's translated right. It's just man. Woman is the glory of man. Man, translators did that on purpose. Women are to be man, excuse me, women were made to manifest man's authority then. This is what it means when a man is the head of the household. It means there is one will and it has to be the man's. This means at least two things. Men then have a grave responsibility. You cannot forego it like Adam, but must take it on like Christ. If women are the glory of man, then it is your responsibility to lift women up just as Christ lifted us up. Women, if you are the glory of man, then you were created to be his helpmate, which by definition means, this is what it means, by definition it means a man cannot do it without you. Otherwise, God wouldn't have needed to make a woman. Man cannot do it without you. That's why you were created to be his helpmate. By definition, he cannot live without you. Maybe you can argue that you can live by yourself without a man, but he cannot live without you. Take that to heart and glorify God in your service and submission. I saw this played out when my grandfather passed on his deathbed. He cried out for one person and one person only, and it was... Uh, 
It was my grandma, right? She was his glory. She was his doxa. She was his beauty. He would call her mother, right? In Korean, but he would call her mother. The previous vice president of, uh, of this nation also would call his wife mother, and the media made fun of him because they have no clue what history is about. He's not calling his wife his mother, but mother classically meant the mother of my children. It is historically a deep term of affection. It's literally, it's literally what Eve means. In Genesis 3.20, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. God would have created, God could have created Adam and Eve simultaneously, but he didn't. In Genesis 2, God said, it is not good for a man to be alone, and then he made a helper fit for him. God takes a rib out of man, creates woman with it, brings her to him, and immediately Adam bursts into song. It's the first song or poem written in the Bible. The scriptures say, after this song, the scriptures say, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This also was directly quoted by Jesus. This is why polygamy was never authorized. God may have overlooked, perhaps, you think, but it was never without consequence in the Bible. Never. That was a side note, but let's go back. Woman was made for man, not the other way around. So woman was made for man from man. The reverse is not true. Man wasn't made for woman. The origin story is there to show us the clear statement that man is in authority and woman is, is in submission. Verse 8, for man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. The defense of the original principle isn't from contemporary culture, the defense of the principle is from creation. Verse 10, that is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. And I can see why this part is tough. What do angels have to do with anything? Some scholars check it out and they don't even say anything on this. Shame on them. Paul makes the biblical case for a woman to be subject to her husband and then says that's why she ought to have a symbol of authority over her head because of the angels. And you might be like, what? Okay, let's run through the process. A woman is submissive to the man. I'm just stating the principles here. Paul wants you to have that symbolized. Why? Because of the angels. What? So first, there is this broad statement, even broader than the principle. It states that women should have a general symbol of authority, exousia, general symbol of authority over her head. That means you are publicly making aware that you have an authority over you. Why? Not because of men. Why? Because of the angels, Paul writes. What do angels have to do with any of this? And is even angels the right translation? Yes, it's the right translation. It's angelos, which either could mean angels or messengers, but in this context, it definitely means angels, not demons. Otherwise, he would have wrote demons. So what do angels have to do with this? This is something our church shouldn't have too much trouble understanding, our particular church. When we worship God in the public assembly, we cite the Sursum Corda. We say, lift your hearts. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. That means our hearts are lifted up to the Lord in heaven. That means we join with all the saints, 
universally of all times and places, but we also join in the angels in worshiping God. Angels, yes, they are mysterious. We don't know too much about them, but we do know that they are intermediaries between heaven and earth. This is what we do know. Angel literally means messenger. They would be, angels will be descending and ascending from heaven and earth. They will be ascending and descending on a ladder in Jacob's dream. And it says in Genesis 28, it says that the Lord stood above it. When Jacob woke up, he said, surely the Lord is in this place. Remember, angels were ascending and descending on Jacob's ladder in his dream. The Lord stood above it. And when Jacob down here woke up, he said, surely the Lord was in this place. What connected heaven and earth? What did God use? What are the mediums? This principle teaches that, well, that Paul is teaching is one of the principles that the angels understand very well. They never have problems with it. In fact, every interaction they have had with humans, every recorded interaction that an angel had with a human that you can read of, you can see how they view authority and submission in every single interaction. You can see how angels viewed authority and submission. In Hebrews, they are called ministering spirits. They watch the church. They see the church. They minister to the church. Why? Because God uses them to help the church, and it glorifies God because it displays his character in the church. It displays his wisdom in the church. It displays his love in the church. Why angels? Because the church classically knew them as messengers that would connect God with man. And in Hebrews, we see that Christ is superior to the angels and that he uses them then to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. The last verse in Hebrews chapter 1. So in our gathering, in our worship, the Lord is present. But we are brought up to the Lord because we are also witnesses then. To the world, yes, but to those that participate in this glorious gathering. Also to the angels. Angels witness the order in our gatherings. And I believe this refers to our witness then. It refers to our witness to the natural world and the supernatural world. What we do here now isn't simply only natural. It is also supernatural. So men, you have a heavy, heavy burden. And women you also have a heavy, heavy burden. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Now to the principle. Remember I said it went back to God last week? That principle went back to God, so Paul is now harmonizing that principle here. Nevertheless, it's a modifier for the previous sentence. Even though woman was made from man for man, even though she is to be in submission to man, neither of you are dependent from each other. Neither of you are dependent from each other. And this is shown in at least two spheres. First, in the family and church. Men are dependent on women, and women are dependent on men in the church. There is no independent group here. If one group didn't function, the church would be left in a state of want. In almost every culture in the world, I've seen women function differently than the men in the church to make the church whole. There is a beautiful complementing 
of men and women that I've seen. We're confusing it in the Western world, and I get it, because we want to go as far away from any biblical principle as possible. There is no instance, again, there is no instance where women are not a vital part of the church then or now, here or there. That was my little reference to Dr. Seuss. Anyway, but here is where I want to address the question that some of you may have had in the previous session. Is this passage only for the family and the church then? Does it apply to the outside world? And Paul ends it here. All things are from God. And if all things are from God, all things should be for God. Here's my advice to you then. Again, I said I won't make this a completely comprehensive study on complementarianism. You're welcome to check out those books. And perhaps if the scriptures allow us to go over to some even, even further detail, we will do that. But here is my advice to you. Don't worry about the outside. Don't worry about how the outside world acts. Paul even says that he isn't here to judge the world. He's here to judge the church. We studied that in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 12. And he says, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? We're so worried about having the outside conform first, we forget that we on the inside must first change and be transformed by the word. It's when we apply these principles to our families and churches, the outside world then takes notice and is effective. Worry first about your own families and this church living out these principles. Don't worry about what men or women can or cannot do. Living rightly in your homes and your church will change or even shake the world outside. But you might respond, but we have to live in the outside world today. Then do as Paul says. Don't judge and live rightly. Okay, this isn't the end. He goes further. And I think it's because even back then people were slow in catching on. He says this, and I believe it's for our benefit. Verse 13, judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For hair is given to her for a covering. He's made this case biblically using creation and even the order of angels. But then he furthers his point of this not being a cultural statement. Then he goes, look at nature. I remember reading this passage uh, in my earlier years of, st of my studies, and I immediately looked it up. I looked up, I Googled, and I searched, uh, do women's hair grow faster than men's, right? And every single article that I came across on Google said, no, women's hair do not grow faster than men's. They actually grow at the same length. And so I said, ah, so Paul may, not, may have been knowledgeable maybe in the Bible, but I guess he didn't know science, right? And this is a term that we like to throw out now. He didn't know science. It turns out that I didn't know science. These so-called experts that I had read didn't know science either. It turns out that there is a biological, built-in biological process that keeps hair longer in women than men. I'm going to I'm go through this quickly. I told you it's going to be a lot. I'm going to go through this quickly but you can ask me for the studies later if you like nerding out like me, okay? Hair grows in three stages, right? 
There's an antigen stage, a catagen stage, and a telogen stage. In the antigen phase, hair grows typically about two to seven years. And in the catagen phase, there is a transition that starts. It's about 10 days. Finally, in the telogen stage, your hair follicle resets or rests or sheds. That's about three months, okay? This is the antigen, catagen, telogen. That's the growth, growth phase, transition phase, and the rest phase. Let's just call it that. In men, male pattern baldness or thinning happens because of two hormones. It's called testosterone and a hormone called DHT. It's dihydrotestosterone. Testosterone turns into DHT through an enzyme found in various tissues in the body. DHT increases telogen, that resting phase, and decreases antigen, the growing phase, in your hair. In multiple studies, in multiple studies, DHT was found to increase the telogen phase of your hair, okay? That's why men bald faster. That's in, in, in short, Men just bald faster. It's because you have testosterone. Oh, well. Okay. In women, estrogen helps counteract the testosterone in their bodies. In women, estrogen helps counteract testosterone in their bodies, thereby limiting what can be converted to DHT. This is why estrogen levels, when estrogen levels drop dramatically in women, Remember postpartum stages? Remember menstruation, the men menopause, excuse me, in menopause, you see a lot of women go through hair loss. Why is that? It's because the estrogen that's used to blocking the testosterone isn't there anymore, so then the telogen phase is lengthened because of the testosterone overload. So while hair in both men and women may grow at the same speed, women would be typically able to keep longer hair than men. Who knew Paul knew what he was talking about, right? So there's this doctor, his name is Dr. Kurt Sten. He studied hair for over 30 years. I don't know why, but this is his passion, I suppose. But he studied hair for over 30 years, and he would note that it's almost universally, culturally found that women have longer hair than women. And I've been to places in Africa when women also shave their heads like men, but that was purely for hygienic reasons, right? Paul is pointing to nature to show us that even if you observe nature, you can see that her hair is her glory. This is why men typically do not grow their hair long. That Paul calls a disgrace because it should be something a woman glories in, not a man, right? In Roman times, writers would ridicule men with long hair. Later in the early church, councils condemned men with long hair. And I will note that there were some exceptions. The Spartans, you guys remember the movie 300, right? The Spartans, I don't think they really had that long of hair in the movie, but historically the Spartans had long hair. They would grow out their hair. Some philosophers, some Greek philosophers would also grow out their long hair. In the Bible, we know that Samson is a notable one. But these are men that were separated by an oath. That's what separated them, okay? Today, it's more of a sign of rebellion, it's a statement that you will not follow societal norms, etc. Again, would I take this part then, even about the hair, seriously? My answer is yes, because it's in the Bible. Some people will say that they don't like long hair because of all the trouble they have to go through. They're busy and they have better things to do. Okay. And I don't think Paul would argue with you either. And neither would any of the apostles for that matter. Verse 16, if anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God, nor do the churches of God. We're not going to argue about nature. And the spirit of the church is not to be contentious. Anything on what is written, 
the apostles and all the churches are in full agreement. When he says we have no such practice, he's not talking about we as in today's language, like we are not going to do this. He's not talking inclusively. He's talking about we as because he's including himself with the apostles, right? So if anyone is inclined to be contentious, we, meaning the apostles, have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. There is no apostle, there is no church on earth at the time that will be contentious with you. They will not join with you, Corinth, in this rebellion. Anything that was written, anything that was said here, the apostles and the churches are then in full agreement. If the Corinthian church wanted to fight this, they will find no one on their side. Paul is already sensing that people hearing this will want to debate and fight. What about here? What about here? What about this instance? What about in this circumstance? You can imagine a few already on your own, right? He will have none of it. If you do, you miss the point. That's the point. If you do, you're missing the point. And it really isn't about hair. If you've shaved your head and I'm very thankful no one here has a shaved head because I didn't want to call you out. But if you shaved your head, it doesn't mean you can't come back to church until you've grown your hair, okay? That's not what it's saying. And if you have long hair, it doesn't mean you're somehow holier than other people who don't have as long of a hair length as yours. Please do not be contentious. The order then that you are to display in worship, the order that you are to display in worship then is to flow into your daily life. That's the point. The order that you display in worship flows into your daily life from inside out, right? God wants roles distinct. If people see the role played out well between men and women in the church, they will see and understand the submission of the church to Christ and Christ's love displayed to the church. Does that make sense? If people see the role played out well between men and women in the church, they will see and understand the submission from the church to Christ and Christ's love displayed to the church because it's literally called to us to play out by husband and wife. What about the church? I believe it's most clearly seen between the elders and the rest of the church. However, however, a wife submissive to her husband won't go around abusing other men. A husband in loving authority over his wife won't go around abusing other women. And I want you to think about that. I want you to think about that. I want you to pray about that as well. I have full confidence that God will reveal the beauty of this doctrine as he did for me. I only saw two things growing up. Number one was men and women are no different. And number two, women are to be objectified. Both are as far as far can be from the truth. This divine order was given to us, and this divine order given to us is incredibly beautiful. And it's beautiful precisely because it reflects Christ and the church. This is what we are to do here, and this is what we are to display naturally and supernaturally. This is for God's glory. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the message that you've given us. Perhaps this is something that we haven't heard ever or in a while or something to that effect, but Lord, your word is thorough. It is comprehensive in all the ways that we need to live a godly and holy life. And this is what we want. We want to glorify you. We want to glorify our maker. We want to bring you glory and not shame. Help us not to walk like the world. Rather, help us to walk like you did. 
because we are people that have been loved by you. We want to reflect love back to you. Receive our worship, O oh God, and be glorified. Let's take this time to pray. And as we pray, let's pray about what I just talked about, what was shared in the word. Think about it, pray about it, and lift up to the Lord your heart. How you can be a man, how you can be a woman that glorifies God, brings glory to Christ, because he is our Savior and King. Let's pray.